All right, so uh, I'm kind of moving along a little briskly uh, because of the amount of information we want to get through tonight. So if you do have the, the uh, handout, and by the way, this, this should be up. I think it's online on, on the listen page if you're watching at home. It looks like this, and we have the hard copies here in the house if you want to follow along. And uh, last week we got together and we, we covered quite a bit of chapter 2, uh, but there's still much more to cover. And by the way, if you're just joining us, this is Wednesday Night Live. We're studying the book of Ephesians. We're examining Ephesians chapter 2 uh, tonight, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, which is a really popular passage. Many of us know the first eight or nine, ten verses. Uh, but we're going to get into some other things tonight that, uh, that are um, uh, kind of dealing with the same chapter, but really there's a lot more meat in it than just uh, the salvation on the front end as we as we look at the three points that we had in our outline. So if you were with us last week, we, we looked at uh, how we've been quickened from the dead in verses 1 through 3, uh, and then we talked about being quickened in Christ, verses 4 through 10, and that's where we left off. And then today we're going to look at verses 11 through 22 and, and talk about how the Christian um, is quickened, and let me get to the point here because I've I'm uh, not there in my notes, so forgive me. I'm skipping ahead. I don't want to misstate this. Yeah, the Christian's understanding. Um, and so it, so we have a quickened. We're quickened to comprehend. The fill in the blank there is comprehend. We're quickened to comprehend uh, our identity in relation to Christ's deity. And so, um, and so the Christian understanding has been quickened to comprehend their identity in relation to Christ's deity. Okay, so uh, the fill in the blank there is uh, quickened to comprehend our identity in relation to Christ's deity. So to comprehend. I should have put two blanks there, I guess. But at any rate, you guys get the, get the point there. So that's the, third, that's the third thing, and you can see it at the bottom, so you can fill that in. So, um, so we, let's just take a moment and look at the text together. As we get into the Word of God and um, and just kind of finish up this chapter, so uh, verses uh, one through nine, most of us are familiar with, and we talked about last week how it talks about in verse one, and you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Hence the point that's you know what we were quickened from from death, and then we uh, get down to verse um, verse four, and it talks about how we're quickened in Christ. But right, it changes. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. So quickened here is mentioned in verse 1. It's mentioned here in verse 5. He's brought us to life. Uh, um, uh, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right, so why? Well, he answered that question. We looked at that. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Now, we talk about that in terms of salvation all the time, as we ought to. But before verse 8, there's, there's information about the, the impact of our salvation that goes on uh, not just in time but eternity. Uh, the ages to come, he's going to show exceeding riches. And I'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 3, uh, and we talk about the difference between the building and the household of faith. There's some distinctions there. Uh, and so verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. 
Uh, and so this gets real practical. So he's got some work for us to walk out, some things he wants us to accomplish. And so he wants us to walk it out. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So there was a time when we were without hope. So this is picking us up into our text. So let's continue to read through the rest of the chapter and we'll break it down. But now in Christ Jesus, ye, ye, who, ye who were sometimes, or were, yeah, were sometimes, were afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of petition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building being fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye are also builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. All right, man, I, I love this passage. There's a lot here, especially when you, well, all of it. Chapter 2 is really rich. And so as we look at this, you know, again, we've seen that we've been quickened from the dead, and we've seen that we've been quickened uh, together with Christ and that he's raised us, to, uh, raised us up in verse 6 and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. And so there's a lot to do with our identity. We're no longer dead in trespasses and sins. We're alive. We're no longer, and now we got all of this identity with Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, uh, positionally and practically speaking. Um, and so there's always discussion about sanctification. And really, all your, when it comes to sanctification, um, if you think you'll be perfectly sanctified in this life, while you have the skin on, you haven't read Romans chapter 7, right? So there's always going to be a struggle with skin on. But we are already sanctified positionally. You're already seated together in heavenly places in Christ because Christ is in us and we are in him and our, his righteousness is imputed to us and his standing is imputed, uh, uh, then our standing is, is actually recognized in him. I'll restate the way I want to say that. So Jesus Christ sees me as, as uh, complete in Christ. That's what he sees. He sees. The Father sees me as perfectly clean because of the sacrifice of the Son. He's my propitiation. In place of me is Jesus. That's why I'm as good as dead, buried, and resurrected. And you are too individually. But there's more to it than that. So you can look at the first eight, ten verses of, of uh, Ephesians and very easily apply it to yourself in an individual basis, as we should. But as you keep working through the book of Ephesians... You get to really understand more and more that, that, that Paul, God is using Paul to go somewhere and help us also understand that this is dealing with the church, the church body, the mystery of the church. When, uh, next week when we get into chapter 3, you're going to see that. It gets into the church and really what's going on. Chapters 3 and 4 deal with the church. And, uh, and then 5 and 6 will deal with some practical outworkings in our lives. But Christ, we need to understand our identity, not that we are no longer dead, that we are alive in Christ. But now he's starting to introduce our relationship to the church. 
And if you take uh, our discipleship, if you're in our discipleship process here at HBF and you're going through the lessons, you know what? That's actually how we, our lessons work. They start with our personal relationship with Christ and deal with that father-son relationship and our relationship individually with Christ. And then God naturally migrates that to the relationship with the church, right? Through the ordinances, right? The word of God, the spirit of God, but then also the local New Testament church and how all that works together. And then the practicum comes out of that. And then ultimately we get back to the issues of the judgment seat of Christ. And what's all this for? Because we're going somewhere. And God, for all of eternity, all the ages to come, wants to point to those of us that are saved and in the church as an example of his grace and mercy and glory. So under this third point, it's really a short point, number three, but it's going to take me the rest of the time to get there. And I don't have a lot of time left. So let me jump into it. So two things every Christian needs to maintain their mind at all times. Um, the first is what God saved us from, and the second is what God saved us to. And I've already given you that outline. Uh, we've already seen it. Really, that's what you see in the first uh, ten verses. The first part, he's quickened us from the dead. That's what he saved us from, is death. And then what he saved us to is Christ. So that helps us get our minds straight. Boom, our heads are clear now. It's Wednesday, midday, hump week. I need some clarity because it's busy. Okay, I just got some. All right, I'm saved from death. I'm saved to life. Jesus Christ is my life. So point A here, uh, we need to remember how lost we were. So in verse 11, we've already looked at it. Wherefore, remember. So he's telling us there's some things to remember. What are we to remember? That ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. So he's really, this, the last part of this chapter is expanding on that first two points that you see in uh, the first uh, nine or ten verses. So remember this. Because you were quickened, uh, from the dead, and because you are now quickened to Christ, right? You, you, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but you're quickened from that. You're brought alive from that, and now you're alive under Christ. So remember this. Remember, verse 11, that ye being in time past, Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. Now, this is a really important point for everyone that's a born-again Christian, is that, that, that you were... Right. Remember how lost we are. Lost we are. We should be. We were. I, I shouldn't put how are we are. We shouldn't be lost if you're born again. So if you're saved, it's how lost we were. Uh, you're to remember that you were Gentiles in the flesh. So Gentile. There's only really two groups of people in the world. What are they, class? That's it. Jew and Gentile. That's a really nice. That's a nice classification, by the way, with all the hoopla in our culture today. Uh, it's it's really Jew and Gentile from God's economy. Don't get mad at me. That's what the Bible teaches. I will break down the household next week when we get into chapter 3 but um, and give you some other ways to look at things. But in just essence, if you're not Jewish, then you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're black, you're white. The skin color has nothing to do with it. You're either Jewish of Abraham's seed, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, and his 12 sons and his seed. You're either Jewish or you're Gentile. Gentile is everybody that's not a Jew. And uh, most of us are, are, are well, it's America. We're a hodgepodge of everything. Most of us, though, are just Gentiles. And even if you're Jewish, you're acting like a Gentile. Uh, and so, God forbid. So Gentiles were not treated as equals, though, among the Jews. And that's really what Paul's pointing out. You, you were counted as uncircumcision by those who were the circumcision, meaning, well, they did think of themselves a little bit more special. Why? Because God had committed to them the law and the prophets, right? They had on Mount Sinai, God had entrusted to Abraham's seed through Moses uh, and the 12 tribes. He gave them the law 
then the prophets, and he had a plan for the kingdom of what we call the kingdom of heaven, what the Bible calls the kingdom of heaven. He's had a plan through Abraham that the, uh, that the Jews were looking forward to govern and rule and reign on the earth, which they will eventually in the millennium. Uh, and so all of that was understood. It is understood. If you read the Old Testament, it is just there in black and white. So, of course, they felt a little bit like uh, they were superior. But God always intended the Gentiles to get saved. That's what God told Abraham. Through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So he, he never intended them to uh, rule in the sense of, uh, of being this, the, you know, the alpha race, like uh, Hitler's uh, Aryan race. That wasn't the key. The key was to bring the word, the truth, to the world, and they happened to be the stewards of it. Now, the, conversely, when you look at the history of Israel, the, pr- the principle of to whom much is given, then much is required. Right? Because if you're entrusted with that, then you need to execute on it. And when they fail to execute on it, then uh, it was a problem. And it was a problem. So uh, forgive me here. My little headpiece is getting a little wonky on me. So the Gentiles were not treated as equals. So look over at Romans 2, uh, 25. I don't know if, we, if we've got that on the screen. But if you're at home watching, driving in your car, um, Paul mentions something here about the circumcision. Paul points out the issues of being circumcised, uh, not in the flesh, but in the heart. And so Paul turns this whole discussion on its head. He himself being a Jew and being uh, circumcised the eighth day according to the law and all those things, uh, he says in, in, uh, in the book of Romans chapter 2 and verse uh, 25, who changed the truth, uh, I'm in chapter 1, sorry, chapter 2 verse 25, uh, for, for, circumc- for circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, th- thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Oh, why is that? Well, because circumcision is, a, is an aspect of as a covenant relationship with God through the law. Therefore, if uncircumcision, if, therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, uh, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not the uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision uh, does transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, this is the thesis, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Now, in Romans two twenty-five through 29, Paul really said some stuff. If you were Jewish and you're reading that, you're going to be going, what? I mean, because your whole world is built on being circumcised the eighth day and keeping the law. And now Paul's coming in and basically saying, yeah, but what if you being a Jew don't keep the law? Because his point is no man can keep the law. And someone who's uncircumcised does a better job of keeping the law than you are. What's God going to look at? So what's God looking at? What's Paul say God's looking at? The heart. That's right. He's looking at the heart. So God's like, hey, there's a heart condition here we got to look at. And so uh, Paul was expanding on what God had already said. So this wasn't like a new revelation that, God, that Paul was just downloading. Actually, this is an Old Testament principle. A lot of people don't know that. Although Romans is a lot of expounding on some things that nobody had heard of yet. Uh, but, but if you go back to Jeremiah chapter 4... Turn back there in the Old Testament. This passage is, is, uh, is really what Paul was bouncing off of. Jeremiah chapter 4. So in chapter 4 here, uh, 
Jeremiah, the old weeping prophet, gets a download, and it says, and he says, well, let's just, I'm going to start in verse 1. If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me, and if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then shalt thou be, then shalt thou not remove. <clears throat> and thou shalt swear, the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, in righteousness, uh, and the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. All right, so we're getting to the meat and potatoes. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. And then he says this, Circumcise yourselves, verse 4, to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. What in the world is that? I'm sorry to get so graphic. We have several ladies in the room, but we know what that is. That's weird. Some weird language there. Um, I don't really know what a foreskin of the heart is in a physical sense. So he's talking in a metaphorical sense. That you know what? You need to be circumcised in heart. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. It doesn't matter that you've been circumcised the eighth day according to Moses because you're wicked and you're not representing me. And so my covenant doesn't mean a whole lot because your heart is so hard. So he's like, repent. That's what the first few verses up the beginning of the chapter talks about. Declare ye in Judah, verse 5, and publish in Jerusalem, uh, and say, blow ye the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the, into the defense city. Set up the standard toward Zion, re, uh, retire, stay not. For I will bring evil from the north and great destruction. It's serious. I mean, God is really letting them have it. So uh, he's saying, hey, man, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, you can do what you want. But the real problem, if you want to be protected from all the evil that is stored up against you, you need to circumcise your heart. That's the problem. You got this law and commandments, but you're not doing it. So that's a reproach. Now you got wrath on you. So now that the law is no longer, now the law is judging you, what are you going to do? Well, you better get your heart right so you can find mercy and, and I can give you grace. Well, Paul's making that same argument in the book of Romans. He's like, listen, you who are called circumcision by the circumcision made with hands, uh, if, if the unrighteous are more righteous than you, then why are you counting on your circumcision? Right? Because there's an issue of the circumcision of the heart. Our heart is the issue. And so in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, the apostle Paul writes here to the, the legalistic Galatians. He says, for in Jesus Christ... Neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. So if you're Jewish right now and you're watching what I'm saying, um, you just turn me off. Because the concept that circumcision availeth nothing was anathema to a Jew. That's why Galatians was written, because people had a hard time understanding that. that what happened was someone would get saved and the Jews would be like, oh, that's great, you got saved, but now you need to go keep the law. Now you need to become... Uh, Jewish, in essence. You need to keep the covenant of Abraham and get physically circumcised. And Paul's like, no, no, time out. This is an, this is an operation of God that's done by faith. And, uh, and so that is not the case. And uh, by it's faith that worketh by love. So in Galatians 6 and verse 15, Paul goes on to say, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. All right, so when Paul says, remember in times past you were Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision, 
but in the flesh made by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. There are covenants of promise given to Israel. And if you were not Jewish, if you didn't become a proselyte Jew like Ruth in the Old Testament, uh, you didn't have access to those promises because they weren't given to you. God has a special dispensation uh, of uh, promises. I don't mean a dispensation like we have the seven dispensations. But, well, I do, actually, the, the dispensation of the law under Moses, which is both uh, pre- previous to Christ and will come back in the tribulation. But there's a dispensation that God's working out of, of, of promises and covenant promises just to the nation of Israel. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week when we get into the household versus the building of God, which is the local church. All right, so uh, Paul reveals the spiritual circumcision to the Colossians. So just to kind of keep talking about this circumcision just a little bit, there is a circumcision that really is important. It's also what Paul's going to reveal in regard to baptism because you can't separate it. When you get baptized, not physically in the water, but spiritually when you are in Christ and Christ comes into you, also there's an operation of God that takes place. Both of these things are supernatural, they're invisible, and they're spiritual. And they have nothing. the, the physical things of both baptism and uh, Old Testament circumcision are just pictures of the really one true thing, which we'll get to in Ephesians chapter 4. And so Colossians 2, Paul is laying this out a little bit further so the Colossians can get a hold of it. Now Colossians 2 is important because Colossians 2 is written to us, and I mean specifically to us. The only place outside of Revelation 3 that Laodicea is mentioned is in, in Colossians chapter 2 at the beginning. It's also mentioned in the footnote of 1 Timothy. Uh, but Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, "...in whom also..." Ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. You're like, Brian, where do you get this circumcision made without hands business? I get it from Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. In the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, that's pretty comprehensive. right? We're not talking about a male member here. We're talking about the entire the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. Notice it ties us in with baptism. Wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So this is pointing us to where we're going to be in, in Ephesians chapter 4 to the one true baptism. There's only one true baptism. All the others are a picture uh, minus the one in uh, there's actually six of them that picture or five of them that picture that. And then one of them that is a baptism of, of uh, uh, in the lake of fire is a whole nother baptism. Uh, for those who never have faith in Christ. But f- uh, five out of the uh, six are pointing to the to the one true baptism, and then there's a, a seventh, I would call it, that points to uh, eternal perdition in the lake of fire. So uh, I'm not going to get into that this week. But anyway, so the circumcision that's made without hands that Paul's talking about, the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, um, happens the moment we get saved. That's when we get quickened. That's what happens. I mean, the Spirit of God comes into us. We call upon the name of the Lord, and we're saved. And we are, Christ is in us, and we are in Him. We're baptized. We identi- he identifies with us. We identify with Him. We're as good as seated together in heavenly places, and Christ is in us. In the text that we read in chapter 2 there, Paul actually says to the Ephesians, he says, you know, uh, Christ was preached to you, or uh, not Christ was preached to you. How did he exactly say that? i got to get back to my text. That would help. Uh, he says... Um, Oh, I, I lost it. So, yeah, verse 17, and, and came and preached peace. It, it, it's interesting. 
it says in verse 17, And came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them which were nigh. Through him we both have access by uh, one spirit unto the Father. I mean, um, it's just cool because even Christ coming to preach to us is attributed to Christ in the context of chapter 2. But it's like Christ has never showed up and preached. He never showed up and preached to the Ephesians. But Jesus did preach to the Ephesians through the Christian. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So Jesus showed up and preached, and he revealed this stuff to them, but they didn't see Jesus physically like the Apostle Paul. And so you have to go back and kind of look at that. But going back to verse 10, talking about we're created in Christ Jesus and and, uh, in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus you were sometimes were far off or made nigh by the blood of Christ. Well, he was preached to them. He literally preached to them through people who had the Spirit of God in them. And so that's, that's pretty profound to think about. But that's another side point. So Paul points to, Paul's point, though, here, let me, before I move on, under point A, 3A in your outline, under, under talking about remembering how, uh, how lost should be we were, not are, how lost we were. Um, Paul's point is to remind the saints that they are no longer counted as uncircumcised, but circumcised spiritually in Christ. Their identity is not that of a circumcised Jew or an uncircumcised Gentile, but of a new creature in Christ. Now, that's really practical. Because today, there's a bunch of people today, Marxists out here, trying to divide people up based on their race. And you can't not say that, I mean, if you do not, if you're not down with race, then you are out, right? Well, biblically speaking, there's only one race that we need to worry about. That's being Christ, having being born again in the last Adam's image. Now, don't get me wrong. There's racial tension. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But, but this is really important because there is a real tension in the, in the community between the Jews and the Gentiles. And even in the church, that's what Galatians is talking about. There's people who profess Christ that are Jewish, and they look differently upon Gentiles. And Paul, the Bible is saying, that's not right. In Christ, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. You are neither Jew nor Greek, but a new creature. Paul is abundantly clear because that's literally what happens. So you're not, this is what I like to tell people. Jesus isn't black and he's not, because, you know, in Song of Solomon, by the way, Jesus was black. I mean, he has black hair, bushy hair, and Middle Eastern. I'm sure in his earthly body, he was, he was uh, definitely brown skin, like an Arab in the Middle East, most likely. There, he's not the Errol Flynn picture from 1930s or whatever, you know, the white Jesus guy with the long hair. And so, whatever, we don't know. The Bible, they're like, Let's tear down the pictures of Jesus. Well, you're not going to find a picture of Jesus in HBF other than the church itself. Uh, you know, Jesus is so diverse. He is not white. He's not black. He's bright. Go back and read Revelation chapter 1. Uh, he is bright right now. And, uh, and so, you know, if you're getting caught up in that, you're totally missing the point. And so, and there's a lot of people missing the point right now. So Paul's point is just to remind folks that, hey, rather you're, in this case, Gentiles mainly because the audience is Gentile that you're no lesser saved because you're not Jewish. And by the way, if you're Jewish, you're no more saved because you've been circumcised physically. Everyone needs to come to Christ through faith. It's an issue of the heart. Okay, point B. Then we need to remember how reconciled we are. So it should be how, how, how lost we were and how reconciled we are. So in verse 13, he says, But now, right, remember how you were, but now in Christ Jesus, ye, ye who were who sometimes were far off, are made nigh, which means near, by the blood of Christ. All right? So we're now made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made 
uh, both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Now, how did he do that? Well, first of all, Jesus is our blood sacrifice, so we were made nigh by the blood of Christ. Um, and so, forgive me for messing with my ear here for a little bit. I've got to figure something out with this. Um, and so, Jesus is, he's made us nigh because of his blood sacrifice. So, Jesus is our peace because he's our peace offering because he has broken down the middle wall of partition. So, when did that happen? Anybody know? When did that happen? When did he break down the middle wall of partition? The ripping of the veil, right. So that would be Matthew chapter 27. All right, Matthew 27, it says, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. So that is literally what the Apostle Paul is writing about, that Jesus Christ replaced, uh, he ripped the, the, the veil in the temple, and it was signifying that access to God is no longer through the Mosaic law. It's going to come through a different a high priest in the book of Hebrews. He's called a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest that predates the law. Melchizedek was before the law. Jesus Christ was before the law because he's eternal. He's our high priest. And so uh, in the Old Testament, though, it's very instructive and it informs us that, oh, well, what was that all about? Well, the high priest every year had to go in, and, and you couldn't enter the Holy of Holies without a sacrifice, and he would go in and make peace for the nation of Israel. So now, not only you not you don't have to worry about the Jewish law in regard to circumcision, but you are, man, you have access to the Holy of Holies. Now, that is quite a, uh, that is quite a blessing. Uh, that's amazing to think about. Um, and so, and so that happened because Jesus Christ w- rent the veil from top to bottom, not from bottom to top, uh, when there, when the and uh, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent Matthew twenty seven fifty one which is also instructive we'll talk about this a little bit more too uh, the church the, the power of God was made available through Jesus Matthew twenty eight makes that clear and the church uh, was was you know quickened uh, when the power came upon them in Acts chapter two uh, hyper dispensationalists will say well you don't need to worry about baptism you don't need to worry about anything before the apostle Paul. You don't have to worry about anything between Acts chapter 9 or maybe some of them go to Acts chapter 28. But Jesus Christ availed, the power of the church was available in Christ. And Paul is writing about that. The attributes of the church were made possible by the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so, um, and so anyway, just, just a point. I'll get to that a little bit more probably next week. But um, So let's talk about some confusion So in some practical application, which is really what I want to get to today. I'm going to run tight on time, so bear with me here as I go a little faster. So uh, you can imagine why this is super, super applicable today, because there's a lot of people that are messed up on their identity, which, which by the way, uh, before I, when we started this subject on the Ephesians uh, back in the COVID, I had no idea that our country was going to break out, you know, and I called this understanding our identity. I had no idea we were going to be in the middle of a, of a race riot thing going on over uh, over um, George, what's his name? George Floyd, yeah. Which is really not about George Floyd, but that's a whole other discussion. So, uh, so, but at any rate, uh, there's a lot of people disaf- that are just totally fired up right now. And, uh, and so and there's a lot of confusion. And I just listened to a very prominent pastor um, named Luke McDonald. He's the son of uh, James McDonald. If you remember James McDonald from... Harvest Chapel up in uh, up in uh, Chicago, Illinois, 
and uh, he did a sermon series called Race and, uh, and the Church. And this is what he titles it, A White Perspective for White Evangelicals. And then he goes in and basically takes the same kind of Marxist line that you're hearing in Black Lives Matter and Antifa and all that and applies it to the church. And I do think his intentions are good. And, he, and I mention this because he actually uses Ephesians 2 and verse 14 to, to, to bounce everything off of, which is a great verse where it says, For he is our peace who, hath both made, uh, who made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. I'm like, man, what a, there's, you, couldn't, you couldn't find a better passage to talk about the current situation. The problem is, is that his whole perspective was basically about the white perspective, and immediately he, he makes it an issue of race instead of an issue of, of biblical truth. It's a Christ perspective is what we need. And, um, and so he goes on to make several assertions about race and culture, some of which, by the way, are accurate. Uh, but not of, but not all of them are accurate, and none of them point to uh, to Adam's edemic, to man's edemic nature. They're all about the white church and the black church, or the white church didn't do this and the black church that. And the bottom line is in Christ for one. And and uh, and so there's some truth in it too. Not everything he said was wrong, but there's also some falsehoods in that as well, in regard to race. And so, um, and so before the dust settles, if Jesus doesn't return soon, the injustice will be based on ra- it won't be based on racial lines, but upon religious ones, as the spirit of Antichrist seeks to beguile the church and get her focused on social justice instead of God's mission, because nothing can be reconcil- reconciled through social justice. The very definition of social justice is is Marxism. By the way, people are so ignorant they don't even know that. And if anybody thinks Marxism is going to save the day, they need to they need to go to school and learn that's just it's nothing but a death trap. But that's another discussion. Uh, and so, uh, when I grew up at Kansas City Baptist Temple in the Lord, I grew up in a church of all peoples, and uh, and it was a, ver- a racially diverse church um, because it represented the community of Kansas City. But it was Jesus Christ bringing people into one kingdom, and that kingdom is the kingdom of God, and it's a spiritual kingdom. And uh, though there is diversity, praise God for that. God, God is all about diversity. He is all about uh, being eclectic. Uh, and in, a, in the church, that's the place where we should celebrate diversity instead of division. And so Pastor McDonald is actually unwittingly or wittingly, I don't know if he, he may just be ignorant, but he is just sowing more division in a time when it really needs to be, um, you know, diverse and celebrate diversity. Uh, and so... So we are truly, I mean truly, equal in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that, that Christians who are white have always treated uh, the black culture as equals. Not all Christians that were white. Because back in the Civil War, there were many Christians obviously caught up in politics just as they are today. Hence, there was a Civil War. There was also a lot of abolition, abolitionists, white folks that were believing the Bible going, this ain't right. And the issue was manifest in the culture and was obviously fought out, and God won. I mean, the second inaugural address by Abraham Lincoln, he just comes right out and says it. This is a judgment on our country for the sin of racism and all the evils that we were doing at that time. And so, and so yeah, nobody's just like nobody agrees that George Floyd should have been choked out by a bad cop. 
Uh, we can all agree on that. But there's folks, there's forces at work that don't want us to agree on that because it's really not about that. And so, um, so that's a bad deal. And it's, it's even scary. You can't even say that out loud or you get maligned. So we're out here in the country. Nobody's going to bother us too much. But our society will continue to struggle with all of this uh, and the various issues of racial and ethnic and social discrimination. Um, and by the way, there is discrimination. I will say, I want to just be clear. Uh, there's discrimination and, and, and there's a lot of reasons why people of color, you know, they feel discrimination. Sometimes when you're white, I will say, there is, in the white privilege thing, there is some privilege to being white just because of the way you're born. It is true. Um, I know a missionary that serves overseas in an undisclosed country, and they serve with other Americans, not of the same pigmentation, and the Asians treat them different. It's not fair. But that's just their pre, that's just, it's not right. It just is. And, uh, and so... Uh, and so there is some real issues there, and, and, I, and Christians ought to be sensitive to that, right? And we ought to understand that, and I think hopefully most of us are. So I'm not, I don't want to minimize that discussion, but the church should be the place where we find diversity, even if you don't have a lot of racial diversity in the church. So you could look at HBF, because I actually have said this out loud, on, like we're not very diverse, we're pretty monolithic. If you just look at skin pigmentation, Right, But our church is diverse for the culture in which we live. And what do I mean by that? Well, in, in this culture, um, we could use a little bit more racial diversity. But um, since we don't have that, we have lots of social economic diversity, don't we, in Cass County. And our church reflects that. Um, we're probably more middle class, but that's another thing. It shouldn't necessarily be, you know, when God's working in a church, you're going to have all different strata of community, not just racial, but also uh, uh, ethnic communities, uh, but not just ethnic communities, I should say, but, but, uh, but economic levels. Because in Cass County, there's certainly different levels of economy, and, uh, and you can tell, right? And this is a church of, you can say we're a church of all peoples. Even if most of the people happen to have the same or similar skin color, everybody's welcome and wanted. We've been saying that since day one, and we mean it. I don't care what color you are. I don't care how poor you are. I don't care how rich you are, right? Everybody is welcome and wanted. And so, uh, and so, so those things, the socially affluent and the folks that are more of the baser sort, well, politi- we have political party. Man, this place is crazy. Cass County is like, man, you don't want to go there politically. You know, you're never safe in a political discussion in Cass County. I remember several years ago, uh, the, the, they were gonna, when they shut off this road here, and put the overpass over. Uh, Luke Cavuzzo comes in here, and he's like, uh, oh, nobody's going to show up. I said, you want the sound system, Luke? He's like, oh, no, we won't need it. Uh, you know, <laughs> they were here till 10 o'clock that night, and that, we had to turn on the sound system because this place packed out, and all the neighbors came out. Man, this was a, this is a, Cass County is a politically charged location uh, in Missouri. And so that's also in our congregation. We got people as far right as you want to go, and, and we got some pretty far left folks, you know. So we got we to gotta be, you know what, but that has nothing to do with being born again. You're a new creature in Christ, even if they don't agree with me as I'm right. No, I'm just kidding. So uh, I'm just kidding about that. So this pastor, James, uh, James McDonald's son, whatever his name is, was using an example from the old elephant room. They used to have the elephant room. They bring all the pastors together. 
And then, and he uses this as an example, uh, because TD, I remember when this happened. So T.D. Jakes was one of the guys they brought in. So they were bringing in a lot of, of, uh, of uh, theologically conservative folks, um, you know, um, relatively speaking, they'd be conservative. I may not agree with everything. They may be Calvinist or whatever, but like John MacArthur or, uh, or uh, they had uh, the dude down at the village and they even had a charismatic or two in there. Well, they bring in T.D. Jakes. Well, a bunch of people press back hard on him. And this pastor goes in to say, see, that's an example of racism. Well, the, the re- re- reason they push back hard because he's a prosperity gospel preacher. It had to do with theology. Uh, it doesn't have to do with his skin color. And truth has got to be the thing that drives us. Truth, the word of God. And there's a lot of other great pastors. Why didn't they bring Tony Evans in then, right? I mean, it isn't about skin color. It's about, I mean, if you want to have a diverse representation, there's plenty of wonderful black pastors out there that could have done the job, uh, but they chose to bring in a heretic. Well, that's why people press back. And so this pastor spins it as a racial thing. So you got to be really careful today because it wasn't necessarily a racial thing. It was a doctrinal thing. And there's a reason in the Song of Solomon the bride was black and comely. Why? Because she's an African. And you know what? It doesn't ruin or disrupt my picture of Christ or the church. The fact that the Song of Solomon portrays Christ with dark hair as a Middle Eastern man doesn't surprise nor confound me. doesn't bother me. doesn't change a thing. Because like I said, he's not white and he's not brown and he's not black. He's, he's bright right now. Revelation chapter 1. He's light. And I don't mean light skin. So let's be clear. There's only two races. What are the two races? Well, Jew and Gentile, those aren't really races. Those are people groups. But really, you got Adam's sinful race, and you got Christ's uh, redeemed race. So I want to roll a clip. We're going to be a little over, but I want to roll a clip by Kenny Morgan. This was from a, a pastor form a couple weeks ago at Midtown Baptist Temple. And I think um, there's a lot more before we roll the clip. I want to tell you that, that this, this is worthy if this topic is interesting to you and you're looking for resources. That whole Bible, that whole pastor question-answer form that they had is worth listening to, and it addresses many more nuances than I'm able to address tonight in the time we have. But I wanted to show you just Pastor Kenny Morgan's uh, response because I think it's pretty much a mic drop. I mean, he gets done, there's not a whole lot left to say. So if you want to roll that, I think he says a lot better than I would. next question is for Pastor Kenny Morgan. As a person of color, how do you believe that the current state of affairs in our country, particularly in the areas of social justice and privilege, has the potential to impact our church and the gospel? So I've had, um, I've had two white men I used to work with. They've reached out to me. They want to talk. They want to get together because they want to, they want to pick my brain on my perspective or my view of the incident in Minneapolis. So one of the guys I'm having dinner with tomorrow night, but I think the, maybe the expectation, um, and it's subtle, is that because I'm a black man, I get to take a pass from the word of God. So I get to view this, speak to this, and deal with this, based on what I think and what I feel as a man of color. So in that respect, it doesn't matter what God has said because I'm black. 
So having said that, what I, what I think about all of this and, and with this question, I think that it's critical for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to understand that we are in the Laodicean church age. And by definition, we're talking about the justice or the rights of the people. So in this church age, people are very passionate and very zealous about their personal rights. But here's the issue, because according to Romans 6.22, when we were made free from sin, we became the servants of God. Well, now I've got a problem because a servant has no rights. So if I'm a servant of God, and the Laodicean church age is passionate about the rights of the people, I got a choice to make. Am I going to be Laodicean or am I going to be biblical? The issue is, is whenever a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ begins to become more preoccupied with their rights versus their role as a servant, now we begin to break down in the church into different groups and factions, right? So now it's, I'm a black Christian, I'm a white Christian, I'm a female Christian, I'm a male Christian, I'm a Democrat Christian, I'm a Republican Christian. And whenever you do that, you cannot win with God. When has that ever worked? I mean, the church at Corinth, they were fractured and they were broken down into factions. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. They got nothing done for the glory of God because they lost sight of of who they were in the Lord Jesus Christ as servants. And so as his servant, I'm at his service. So what is it that that he would have me to do? And so if if MBT in particular, if we get to the point where we begin to break down that way and we begin to allow what's happening in our country to divide us, and so now we are not a church of all peoples, but we are a church of blacks, we're a church of whites, we're a church of men, we're a church of women, we are a church of Democrats, we're a church of Republicans, we will get nothing of significance done for the glory of God whatsoever. It's interesting to me that with the exception of Paul's epistles to the Thessalonians, in every letter that he wrote to the churches, he introduced himself in one of three ways, either as a servant, as an apostle, or a prisoner. It was never Paul the Jew. It was never about who he was in the flesh. It was about who he was in Christ and what it was that God had called him to do. And I think that's how we have to view ourselves. It's, it's, it's not about who I am in the flesh. It's about who I am in Christ and what is it that he's called me to do? What has he called us to do? That, that's it. And the minute that any other interest, agenda, objective, gets in front of that, we will grieve God. We absolutely will. And so I just, and so now it's, it's you know, we, we begin to, to address all these issues and, 
in the flesh. Let me, let me just say this. Okay, so in no way am I advocating social injustice or it's okay, it's not a big deal. It's awful. <laughs> it doesn't glorify God. It, it's terrible. It's not just. God is a God of justice. I, I get all that. But here's what we absolutely have to get as believers. If we miss this, we're in deep trouble. Listen very, very carefully. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can never have righteous expectations of unrighteous people. You can't do that. You can't. The fruit of the Spirit of God, it produces things like love, joy, peace, goodness, meekness. It produces those kinds of things. But the Spirit of God produces those things. So why would I expect a lost person, whether it be a police officer, a co-worker, a family member, a neighbor, who is Christless, why would I expect them to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit when they don't have the Holy Spirit? It's, it's an unreasonable expectation. They can't do that. So this is why I am not shocked when I turn the TV on and I see things like we saw a few weeks ago in Minneapolis. Lost people think lost thoughts. They say lost things and they do lost things because they're lost. And so this is where now issues, you know, groups that are passionate about social justice and whatnot, this is where they fall miserably short is because the goal is somehow we're going to reform lost people without Christ. Can't do that. You can't accomplish that. Sam said it tonight. It's only Christ in them. Colossians chapter 1, Paul talked about how the gospel worked in the believers. At Col- the gospel works in people. It brings, cha- it brings about change in people. You saw as a perfect example. Here's a man who hated Christians, was as racist as you could be against believers. When then he meets Christ, gets saved, and all of a sudden, he loves them. That's the answer. And so I just, it, it breaks my heart, and I agree with Sam, and, I'm, and I see it, and I hear it. It breaks my heart. And man, if you're here, I hope you heard this tonight. But if you are, if you were thinking that the gospel was not enough, you're in trouble. (laughs) You're going to lose your mind. If the gospel is not enough, I don't know what is. And so, you know, just to make sure I I address your question, it's not about Jew or Greek, circumcision, uncircumcision, uh, Barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, Christ is all and in all. And I I don't have any other perspective or input apart from that. And if we step away from that to weigh in on this, address this, deal with this, we're in trouble. about all that needs to be said about that now uh so I, I bring that up because of verse 14 and and that was a great kenny did a great job with that and uh 
And so I recommend that if you'd like to hear more of that, listen to the whole thing. There's also, uh, you know, I will say, you know, some other good discussions, too, about how to leverage, you know, your liberty. You know, because there is, you know, a lot of times, I know, especially people in the culture in Cass County, let's just use our local locale, you're not necessarily dealing with all the same dynamics as a very multicultural community like Midtown. But, uh, you know, use your liberty as an occasion to the flesh. Paul was a Roman citizen. He didn't use it over anybody, but when he needed to use it, he used it. So there is times to use. If there is any privilege, then use it for God's glory, you know, and uh, use it. To s- there's people that used to live in the north, right, that uh, use their liberty uh, to see other people free. And so that was just a that was a profound um, statement. I don't know if you guys got anything out of it, but man, I tell you that to me, just that that was it. I mean, it was pretty good. So, uh, as we wrap up this text, and I'm going to finish up for time, so I can move into chapter three, in verses 15 through 17, it goes on to say, "Having abolished in the flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. So the work that was done to reconcile man was done on the cross uh, by Jesus Christ." When he abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law and commandments contained in the ordinances. So Jesus Christ took that on himself and he, and, uh, for to make in himself of twain one new man. Uh, and so and that, was re- that was recognized at the resurrection, what that new man looked like. And so verse 16, and, and that he might reconcile. There's a purpose of this. Both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity, which is the war thereby, the enemy. And so uh, it came, and it came, and I'm sorry, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. Of course, how did he preach peace to them? Well, through the, the apostles and, and the, the preachers of that day. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father, which is literally what Kenny was just talking about. We all have one access. We're all in all. That's not to excuse or dismiss uh, the things that go on today in the flesh, but uh, we're one body by the cross. In chapter 3, we'll expand on that in verse 16 that we have in this chapter will be expanded on. So it's worth noting that Jesus' work on the cross brought us, all saints, into the church, into one household of God, and it will, and it's, or actually even the one body, I should say, and it won't be, until, it wasn't until he died on the cross that this happened. And so um, next week I'll get into, I'm going to leave off some of this issues of hyper dispensationalism, but I'll touch on that next week. Uh, the difference between, um, the, 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 this household of faith versus the body of Christ, which there is some distinctions. Uh, and it gets back to the middle wall of partition being broken down, the one new man, the building that follows, which by the way, the apostles and the prophets, um, um, were, uh, you know, able to identify with. And, uh, and then the building uh, that is literally um, that we were brought into in Christ. And so I'll just talk about all those distinctions. For time's sake, I'm going to keep moving. So in verses 18 and 19, where it says, For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, we are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. So we're like high priests entering to the Holy of Holies. We are saved and uh, fellow citizens with the saints. In Revelation 1.6, the Bible says that we're kings and priests. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says we're a royal priesthood. And so we're also citizens of heaven. Ephesians 3, which I'll get to next week, 
it says, in whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And so we'll talk about that next week. And then in Galatians 6.10, it says that we are of the household of faith. It says to do good unto all men, especially them of the household of faith. So there's a family and then there's a household. So now part of God's building, we're now part of God's building, verses 20 through 22. It says, and, and we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now Paul is here writing to a Gentile church and he's, he's accounting the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So um, that's why, again, hyper-dispensationalism doesn't work because it was Jesus Christ is the one building his church, and he did incorporate not just the apostle Paul, but the apostles, plural. And so you see that as well in the text in verse 20. And then it says in verse 21, "...in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth together, or groweth, I'm sorry, unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit." So we all compose the structure of God's eternal temple. In Ephesians 4:11. Uh, now this isn't talking about just us individually. We're talking about us corporately. Uh, Paul will go on to say, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, right, the building of the body of Christ, till we all come uh, into the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a, or, yeah, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And next week when we get into the dimensions, I will talk to you a little bit more about that. Uh, but Paul gives us more insight into the building as well. So it's a temple. It's also a building. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9, the Bible says, For we are laborers together with God. You're God's husbandry, right? You're God's building. So it's organic and it's growing, but it's also structural. Verse 10, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, so Paul having a, a part in building the body. I have laid the foundation, another man buildeth thereon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. See, there is a role for everybody in the, that's born again to build upon uh, the foundation and what Jesus Christ is doing in the church. Every member is important. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 speaks to that. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious sto uh, stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And fire shall try every man's work, or what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. So individually you are, and I am the temple of God, but also collectively we are the body of Christ. And so we all need to keep that in mind in our behavior, because no man lives to himself, and no man is dying to himself. Now let me finish up with this. Some would have you to believe the church was not quickened in Acts 2, but uh, the book of Ephesians is getting ready to launch into the mystery of the church. Uh, in, this, in the next chapter, if you're going to read ahead. And already from the text, God has provided plenty of evidence to refute the doctrine of hyper-dispensationalism, which we've had some of that floating around HBF. That's one of the reasons I'm bringing it up. Uh, we had a person that was going around subtly trying to twist people's minds on this doctrine, um, and so I'm, I'm touching on it. Um, and they never came to me personally, of course. 
And so, uh, so they, would, they would reject the idea that the church is quickened in Acts chapter 2. Uh, a preacher once said that, that concerning these things, um, one must ign- uh, be, uh, uh, be ignorant to be a hyperdis. Oh, there are several things that, that they, uh, a person has to ignore to be a hyperdispensationalist. So let me give you this real quick list. This is not in your notes. Number one, you've got to ignore the fact that, that the opportunity was available at the end of Matthew chapter 27. Jesus, which we just talked about, the middle wall of partition being broken down, the finished work of Christ was accomplished on the cross. And in his resurrection, of course, the church wasn't born yet in the sense of Acts chapter 2, but the power and the work was done by Jesus Christ. And number two, got to ignore the fact that the apostles and the prophets in Acts chapter 1 through 15 were in the foundation itself of the church as the Apostle Paul is setting it forth right here. And Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. If, the, if that is the case, if the church was not formed until Acts chapter 9 or Acts chapter 28 um, and, uh, and all of those things, and, and Acts chapter 2, those poor saints are out, uh, then what about Jesus Christ and the and the prophet or the apostles that are mentioned here, that we're building upon? Uh, and then number three, you got to ignore the context of chapter two, which leads us in uh, into for this cause in in the very next chapter. For this cause, I Paul the prisoner Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. He gets into that and he lays out the mystery. Verse, uh, the fourth thing is you got to ignore the fact that all the original 11 apostles were in Christ and in God and in the Godhead with Christ in them um, and them in him, according to John 17, 21. That's what Jesus Christ was praying for his apostles, John chapter 17, before Paul was ever converted, long before Paul was converted. And then you've got to ignore the fact that the Ephesians were in Christ and in the one body as far back as Acts chapter 18 and 19. Paul's writing this church to this church long before uh, many of the hyper-dispensationalists give credit for the church being born. He's already addressing them and revealing the mystery of the church to them, which is really a big mess up. Uh, and so seven to ten years before Paul even wrote the epistle to the Ephesians, they were already in Christ. And so those are things you gotta you got to be careful about. And so don't be, don't, uh, if somebody is lurking around here telling you that, uh, you know, HBF, you don't know how to rightly divide the Word of God because um, we're not hyper-dispensationalists, then you, gotta, you need to listen to somebody else. And actually just tell them to come talk to me. I'll just take care of it from there. But uh, at any rate, uh, why does that stuff go on? Because it doesn't matter if it's doctrinal divisions or it's racial divisions. Bottom line is right now, uh, the only thing we need to be dividing is rightly dividing the Word of God so that we can rightly apply the Word of God so we can be one in Christ and we can bring everybody into Christ. It doesn't matter if they're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we're one in Christ. And today is the day to preach the gospel like nobody's business because what you're seeing is the devil working and it's the time for the church to go to work. And so if you're joining us online, we're glad that you hung in there with us. Appreciate you coming tonight. Thank you, guys. That's the, that concludes my teaching. Are there any questions before we wrap it up? I just flew over a lot of, there's a lot in that chapter. There's going to be more coming up, but I'm trying to get through this book. Well, thanks for coming. Remember to pray for Amenta, pray for Joyce Schleyhuber, her 